Welcome to the Commune Podcast. This is Jeff Krasnow. So connecting personal wellness to societal well-being is a bedrock of Commune's mission. And this podcast is an expression of that mission. I try to tackle thorny societal issues, often through the lens of spirituality and wellness. And in recent months, I have felt the pull to try and make some sense out of our political morass. Hence, many of my episodes have listed into politics. I am excited to veer back into more ontological and metaphysical topics, but also feel the need to put what I hope is an exclamation mark on the political season, as I am not completely confident we collectively realize how close America came to the unraveling of its democracy. Okay, so it's three weeks after Election Day, and it seems like the marine layer is finally burning off. Last Friday, Georgia certified its results for President-elect Biden, and yesterday, Michigan certified as well, and as of this recording, Pennsylvania's certification seems inevitable. These states will now send their slate of electors to the Congress to tally in early January. And provided states certify the results before December 8th, known as the safe harbor period, Congress must accept the electors. If states miss the safe harbor deadline, then Congress can consider disputed slates of electors. Now, this civics lesson in the arcane minutia of election law is only relevant since it represents President Trump's latest madcap scramble to find a legal loophole that will undermine the results of the election he lost. Now, right now, as of this moment, it seems like our institutions have held but clearly they are not completely impervious to the assault of a madman and his enablers. And I think it's essential that we acknowledge how terrifyingly close we were to detonating our democracy. We were literally teetering on the precipice. We've witnessed a man spray lies like a sprinkler head, threaten officials, speciously litigate, and fire non-loyalists in order to maintain power and undermine the will of the people in the wake of an election that he clearly lost. This behavior can be known by no other name than authoritarianism. And honestly, we're probably not even done. There will likely be one last moonless night in Trumplandia. Now, I've thought about this in terms that Trump himself could understand. Think about how long it takes to develop a building, to design it, to hire the teams, to dig the foundation, to plumb and wire it, to frame it, to drywall and spackle it, install the sconces and furniture and myriad other elements. It takes years to do that, sometimes a decade. And then think of how quickly that building can be exploded. I suppose we all saw that with our own eyes on 9-11. But you've also probably seen TV shows on strange channels and at strange times that depict buildings imploding instantaneously. The same is true for democracy. Think of all the foundational work that has gone into building our democratic system, all the sacrifice, the wars, all the principled battles for justice and equality. Our country is far from perfect, but we have slowly and inexorably inched our way along the arc of the moral universe, and we almost blew it up. And if there's anything that we've learned from Trump, 
It's how fragile our democracy is, how reliant it is on basic democratic norms and decency, like concession and a peaceful transfer of power. We have a sitting president who has sought to delegitimize the results of an election through a deluge of lies and unproven conspiracy theories. And while refusing to concede, he is engaged in every possible measure to sabotage the administration of his successor by denying him access to vital security briefings, information regarding COVID, and the potential distribution of a vaccine. And all of this is happening against the backdrop of a massive spike. We are seeing 200,000 cases and 2,000 fatalities every day. Yet the president not only refuses to share essential information, he has barely addressed the pandemic publicly since the election. These actions can only be explained by pathological narcissism. Somehow, the loss of an election transcends any concern this man may have for the people he governs, including the people that blindly support him. Now, I want to draw a line between Trump and his enablers and the people that voted for him. I have written extensively about how Trump provides agency for people, particularly for the white working class, how he doesn't judge them, how he makes them feel heard and seen. Even if much of Trump's constituency is taken in by his chronic mendacity, they are not the primary actors actively trying to subvert democracy. This is not just a series of legal battles about fraudulent ballots. No one is denying the right of President Trump to engage in credible inquiries around potential malfeasance, even though there hasn't been a scintilla of evidence presented to support any kind of mass-scale fraud that would overturn an election. This is not the year 2000, where the election came down to 537 votes in one state. This is not even 2016, which Trump claimed he won in a landslide. This is an election where one man won 6 million more votes than the other, and hundreds of thousands more votes in the key swing states that cemented the Electoral College win. And neither political party is free of corruption, influence peddling, and divisiveness. And I've been quick to point out where the left's moral posturing takes primacy over truth. But the asymmetry here between the two parties in the wake of the election is so stark now, Trump's facilitators like Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham, and folks inside the White House, they know he lost. They know he got less votes in the states that matter. Yet they seem more than willing to continue to prop up this two-bit con man while literally playing Jenga with our democracy. Now, maybe they're maneuvering to maintain the support of Trump's base, or maybe they are attempting to preserve Republican intensity in Georgia in order to not lose the Senate. But regardless of the reasons for the strategy, the inability of Republican leaders, with some notable exceptions, to recognize Biden as the president-elect is crassly cynical and a danger to our democracy. Elections come and elections go, but faith in democracy must be safeguarded above any election or political party. Now, of course, undermining the American election process through lies has been a long-term project for this president. Now, remember, Trump's entree into politics began with the ruse of birtherism, the false claim that Barack Obama was born in Kenya and thus not a legitimate president. In 2016, he acclaimed election malfeasance in a contest he won, 
proffering that millions of illegal immigrants voted as a means to explain Hillary Clinton's three million person popular vote victory. Despite that agonizing loss that Clinton endured, which was much closer than 2020, she conceded the next morning and Obama immediately began an orderly transfer of power. Over last summer, when Trump knew that his re-election bid was on shaky ground, he hatched a completely transparent plan. And without any proof, and contrary to all evidence from states that vote almost exclusively by mail, Trump began to sow doubt among the public in the reliability of mail-in ballots. In May, he installed one of his top donors, Louis DeJoy, as a postmaster general. DeJoy had zero USPS experience and actually owned stock in a competing delivery service. And Trump did everything he could to incapacitate mail service, including threatening to block a $10 billion loan approved by the CARES Act as a means to impede the Postal Service from doing its job. And for months, there was a flood of tweets coming from Trump, and I quote, this will be the greatest rigged election in history. There is no way, zero, that mail-in ballots will be anything less than substantially fraudulent. Vote by mail would be a free-for-all on cheating, forgery, and theft. This effort to discredit mail-in votes was accompanied by a concentrated push to get his voters to cast in person, despite the predictions of a false spike in covid but, of course, Trump downplayed the virus to his constituents from the beginning. There was also an attempt to strong-arm state legislatures to pass bills that prohibit the counting of mail-in ballots in advance of November 3rd. While actively working to delay the reporting of votes, Trump simultaneously and consistently tweeted that there should be a winner declared on November 3rd. Of course, he knew the counting of ballots, particularly in a pandemic, would take days to tabulate, and that these ballots would heavily skew to Biden. This was part of an orchestrated scheme to create a Trump mirage, to stand in front of the American people and claim victory on the evening of November 3rd, and control the narrative. And this is what he did. Late in the evening on November 3rd, he asserted that he had won big. He claimed states that had not been declared, like Georgia, and outlined supposed insurmountable leads in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And in the same breath of declaring himself the winner, he propagated theories of widespread fraud because he knew there were millions of Biden votes that would be counted over the following days. In a statement of absurd irony, he accused Democrats of launching spurious lawsuits. And to be honest, it almost worked. Certainly his core supporters, drunk on their leader's con game, were ready to coronate Trump for another term. But there was a surprising bulwark that provided a line of defense. For four years, Trump has droned on and on about fake news, deriding the media and fomenting distrust in the institution of journalism, to the point of utter collapse. Certainly, there is plenty to be critical of. The ad revenue model of news media creates misaligned incentives. The 24-hour news cycle values speed over depth. Platforms, in some cases, have become increasingly biased. But on November 3rd, this institution, built on a foundation of ethics, held back the surge of lies. They waited for the votes to be counted. And it wasn't just CNN and MSNBC that consistently messaged the fact that counting votes would take days. 
Conservative outlets like Drudge and Fox News also stood their ground, reported vote tallies properly, and clearly elucidated the fact that in 2020, ballot totals would take longer to tabulate, given the volume of mail-in votes. And as much as I vociferously rail against social media, many of the social platforms committed to providing fact-based information well in advance of the election and have continued to flag disinformation. Trump could simply not distort reality because an election is not determined by qualitative data, or in his case, smoke and mirrors. Elections are determined by numbers, and numbers don't lie. Donald Trump lost this election on a strictly empirical basis. In the days immediately following the election, Trump demanded that the vote count be halted in states where he was ahead, while urging the continuance of counting in states in which he trailed, like Arizona. And instead of an orderly transition, for three weeks, Trump has once again sucked up all the oxygen, trying to steal an election, all while claiming it is being stolen. And the delusion actually has no coherence. Trump's ludicrous claims support a swindle by the left so refined that somehow Democrats lost House seats and failed to win competitive Senate races, but managed to unseat the president. And of course, Trump is claiming widespread fraud with the very same ballots that elected these Republicans across the country. There have been hundreds upon hundreds of races determined with these identical ballots, and in virtually every race, there has been a victor and a concession. The cognitive dissonance seems to matter little, and this is the way with a cult. People's ability to reason is bypassed. Since Election Day, Trump has done what Trump does. He litigates. Reports claim that he has been involved in over 3,500 legal cases across his career. He has filed one farcical suit after another with wide-ranging and outlandish claims. They have tried to invalidate mail-in ballots claiming they violated equal protection. They've claimed poll observers weren't allowed close enough to the ballots. They have claimed that Dominion software was hacked by communist forces. They're simply trying to find anything that will stick. And this is where, so far, another institution has held. Judges have thrown out virtually every case in every state because in judicial courtrooms, unlike the court of public opinion, you need real evidence. Increasingly, white shoe legal firms have begun to distance themselves from Trump. It's pretty rare that lawyers refuse a gig, but evidently reputable firms don't want the stain of this perversion. And further, they likely don't want to be stiffed. So with fewer people to represent him, Trump has again dived into the swamp to dredge up lawyers that are openly pro-QAnon, like Sidney Powell. At last week's press conference, Powell claimed that Trump won in a landslide and with no evidence described a secretive vote-flipping operation devised by George Soros, the Clinton Foundation, Antifa, communist actors in Venezuela, including the late ex-president Hugo Chavez, Cuba, China, and thousands of election officials from both parties, including Republican Governor Brian Kemp. Powell ultimately proved to be one of the few people too extreme for even Trump. Before the administration's distancing from Powell, Tucker Carlson, the most fervent sycophant of the president, asked her for evidence supporting this claim. 
the response to Carlson among the president's allies was immediate and hostile. This quote is a distillation of the derangement we are currently experiencing. Quote, how quickly we turn on our own, said Bo Snurdly, Rush Limbaugh's producer, in a Twitter post that was indicative of the backlash against Mr. Carlson. Quote, where is the evidence the election was fair? Now take a moment to think about that statement. Where is the evidence the election was fair? The very foundation of law puts the burden on the person levying the charge. In criminal cases, the onus of proving guilt is on the prosecution, and they must establish that fact beyond a reasonable doubt. The obligation to prove the assertion of fraud rests with the president. Yet tens of millions of people are completely convinced that this election was stolen due to widespread fraud. We are living in an epistemological crisis. Chris Krebs, the former director of U.S. cybersecurity, called Giuliani's and Powell's press conference, quote, the most dangerous hour and 45 minutes of television in American history. And he wasn't talking about the black rivulets of sweat streaming down Giuliani's face. Of course, Krebs was fired by Trump for issuing a joint statement calling the 2020 election the most secure in American history. Krebs is not the only casualty of Trump's rage. Trump has fired a host of DHS and cybersecurity officials who have not displayed blind fealty, including Brian Ware and Valerie Boyd. He closed ranks at the Defense Department, firing Secretary of Defense Mark Esper along with other top deputies. Richard Pilger, the Department of Justice Election Crimes Division Chief, also resigned after Attorney General William Barr authorized investigations into voter fraud, violating long-standing policy that prevents the DOJ from interfering in elections. Firing people that keep us safe and replacing them with loyalists should deeply concern us, regardless of party affiliation. This is right out of the authoritarian dictator playbook. The specious litigation and recount requests are also part of the president's ploy to delay state certifications of the election results. This scheme hopes that, in the absence of certified results, Republican-led legislatures will appoint a separate state of electors that will pledge their support for the president, overturning the will of the voters. Trump actively courted Republican leaders in Michigan and Pennsylvania, pressuring them to engage in this gambit that would create a constitutional crisis. Trump even called Republican members of the canvassing board for Wayne County, Michigan, and pressured them to recant their assent in certifying the county's results. We haven't heard the contents of that call, but given that both of the canvassers did try to recant after the call, one can only imagine the threats or bribes or both that characterized it. Now, assuming Biden is officially declared president, Americans are far from out of the woods. Trump has radicalized tens of millions of people through the weaponization of misinformation. And to understand the depth of the pathology, we need to dissect how this self-perpetuating feedback loop of extremism functions. So Donald Trump has 89 million followers on Twitter and 35 million followers on Facebook. When Trump tweets or retweets a lie, 
like Dominion scanning software denying him hundreds of thousands of votes or that scores of dead people voted. Those falses are shared hundreds of thousands of times. Trump supporters become vectors for the spread of his misinformation. So when someone shares a post that has no basis in fact, the sensationalism of that post garners tremendous response and stokes the algorithm of the poster. It is understood that misinformation spreads six times faster than fact. So you have someone sharing the president's bullshit to their own group of followers, and then that person is getting tons of comments and likes. That activity is opening up a reward pathway in that person's brain. They get dopamine hits in direct proportion to the engagement of their posts. This neurological impact reinforces this behavior. So as a consequence, people just continue to share content that is increasingly extreme with no regard to whether it's true. This phenomenon in some part explains Trump's fervent online following. People are literally addicted to spreading falsehood. And Trump has fostered a distribution network of lies. And the result is the collapse of any sense of intersubjective truth and the crumbling of social cohesion. This is the mess we're going to need to clean up. Now, while I'm relatively confident that we will inaugurate Joe Biden on January 20th, I am equally confident that the Trump carnival isn't over. There is still yet another shell game abetted by a host of shills. But hopefully, hopefully, in a couple of months, our lives won't be completely subsumed by this energy vampire. I mean, the guy is simply omnipresent. It's like there's a framed portrait of him in every room in my house. And we have willingly given him what his ego craves, attention. I'm witnessing posts on social media about prosecuting Trump post-term, and I might suggest lock him in a library with no Wi-Fi. We simply can't have Trump sucking the life out of every living thing every day. We all just need a cortisol break. We need to move out of the amygdala and back into the prefrontal cortex where we can think critically. We'll need to rely on reason and cooperation to sturdy the institutions that have wobbled under duress, but in the end, seem to have staved off authoritarianism and saved our democracy. And with that, I will yield the balance of my time to the rest of your drive or workout or dinner making. Thanks as always for listening to the Commune podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, drop me a note at jeffk at onecommune.com. You can follow me on Instagram at Jeff Krasno, or if you feel so inclined, make my mother proud by leaving me a review on Apple Podcasts. That's it from the Commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I'm here for you. Thank you.